Uh, This morning's scripture reading is from chapter 8 of the book of Joshua. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. So Joshua went, sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city, He took about 5,000 men and sent them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of I looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out of the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua. 
So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a heap of stones which stands there to this day. At that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as the native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. This is God's word. Well, after reading of this sort of inspiring military strategy and then victory, I considered this morning preaching on luring non-Christians into conversation and then, boom, ambushing them from behind with the gospel. <laughs> and then, then possibly looting them, depending on how they're doing. But I decided to spare you from that. We did last week, however, discuss this battle in a way. We discussed why Generation Next, after such an ambush, is permitted to loot and plunder. And I, in this instance, whereas God asked them not to do so in Jericho, as we saw last week. Because in Jericho, there was just a give of the first fruits of the first conquered city of this new land. You'll have to go back and listen to that from last week. Today, we're going to focus on the part of the passage that I know has really caught your eye, got your attention, and made you think, why hasn't Hollywood, why hasn't Martin Scorsese made this into a major motion picture? If not Scorsese, maybe James Cameron, kind of maybe an Avatar-type 3D movie, I don't know. But it's verses 30 through 35, all right? You got altars, curses, blessings, and eight to ten hours of reading from God's law. On not one, but two mountains. The only question is, who plays Joshua? Do you go with the more elderly statesman, George Clooney type, or maybe a young blood, Shia LaBeouf? I don't know. (laughs) Unbelievable. All right, so now, while I'm going to go ahead and admit this passage isn't immediately applicable to life, most of us are not going to go home right away or go to our place of work and say, now I know what to do in life because of verses 30 through 35 of Joshua chapter 8, I will say this. I believe this passage has the potential to alter or even transform your view and your attitude towards worshiping together as a church. Sometimes that's what God's Word does. You can't just always take God's Word and say, well, I know immediately what I'm going to do. Sometimes the best way to apply God's Word is see how it begins to transform how we view life. 
how it transforms and alters our attitudes towards people. And I think that's what it does here. And in these verses, God is giving his people a glimpse into their future as a worshiping community and also, I think, into ours. So what we'll do is first take a glimpse into their future and then begin to see how it translates into ours. And understanding many of the implications of what's going on here in Joshua 8, i got to say I'm greatly indebted to Francis Schaeffer and his book, uh, Joshua and the Flow of Biblical History. Some of you with a bit more life experience, shall we say, and, and Christian experience may be familiar with Francis Schaeffer, who was one of the great Christian leaders, thinkers, and really prophetic voices of the mid to late 20th century, both in the U.S. and in Europe. And if you're not familiar with Francis Schaeffer, for those reasons, you should be familiar with his beard. All right? He also has one of the great beards of the 20th century. Look at that. That's just amazing. I mean, I, I call it the uh, Ramses the Great. Let's first look at their future glimpse. God's people in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, their future glimpse of what it would be like to worship as a community. Let's read again, with, read with me verses 30 through 35, and let... The Hollywood drama soak over you here. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. They offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner, another foreigner, as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel, and afterwards he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that's written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So let me give you a setup here. You have victorious generation next. They now control the northern end of the mountain ridge on this highway that went south by Jerusalem all the way down here to Hebron. You can see the dotted line. They control this, this northern ridge and, and all the way up to you see where Ai is, where they just conquered the people of Ai and conquered this land. They travel north as they go north towards an important city that's nestled in this valley, which will open up to them the entire western plains of this new land, out to the Mediterranean Sea. And the city in this valley along this passageway to the west is a city known as Shechem. And this city, Shechem, had a long and important history to God's people. Check this out. Approximately 600 years earlier, Abraham stopped here at Shechem as he traveled from Ur. He was promised this whole land at Shechem, he built his first altar to the living God at Shechem. As God's people, as the first representative of God's people, he first worshipped at Shechem. So it's fitting we have another worship 
service here the next time the Israelites come back. It, it was to Shechem that Jacob fled. When running away from his overbearing father-in-law, Laban, he built a well there, Jacob did. And at that well, Jesus Christ would later encounter a woman in John chapter 4. Joseph, another major patriarch in God's family, he was buried at Shechem, along with his Technicolor dream coat. I don't know, maybe, maybe not. That's, that's speculation. But you see, there's this web of history. There's this web of God's activity going through this city and in this city. The first place God's people worshipped, they were back here again. Shechem stands along this valley passage between these two mountains. All right, you have Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They're about a mile and a half apart from the peaks, but at their base, they're only about 500 yards apart. One of the most interesting features of these two mountains and a major reason why God leads them here at this point in time is that both mountains together form this natural amphitheater. So as it alludes to here in in verse 33, you have here this picture and this reality of half of God's family are standing on the face of one mountain reading the blessings that would result from obeying God's law, Mount, uh, Mount Gerizim. Half of God's family reading to the other half. And then, after they're done, the other half correspondingly reads the curses of failing to live out God's law on Mount Ebal, and they read it to the other side. And you can imagine what a powerful visual aid this would have been. A powerful visual aid that I'm sure those who participated in would remember for the rest of their lives. Kind of reminds us of, of things like baptism and communion today, how they represent a greater reality going on here. By the way, this is not a new, spontaneous idea that sprung up to do Shakespeare on the mountaintops here. Moses had actually commanded this generation to do this when they entered the Promised Land, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 27. We're going to read that quickly, because it sheds a little light on what's going on here. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. On the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on, on them all the words of this law. So it was a sort of calcium uh, substance they would uh, put on these stones to write on them. You shall write on them all the words of this law. When you cross over to enter the land that the Lord is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your Father, has promised you, when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal. And you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. You shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall sacrifice peace offerings, and you shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So you have here Joseph carrying out this command. For the first time, this generation, Joshua and generation next, hears the entirety of God's law together as one people, gathered together to worship. And if you think that they felt sort of warm and fuzzy after reading God's law all together, that would be to virtually ignore every other time in the Old Testament where God's people read the law together. Every other time they read God's law together, something happens. You know what it is? Weeping. Because 
people recognize as they read God's law, they fall short of God's high standards. So for example, encased in Leviticus and Deuteronomy are two high standards upon which every other standard hinges, both then and now. So Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So with all of who you are, love God. That's a pretty high standard, right? And the second high standard from Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. I don't know about you, I think about myself a lot. All right, I plan things mostly around me. As we talked about last week, has huge implications. We saw last week how private sin, the things you do in private, in secret, this, maybe the, the double life you lead or the things on your laptop, they affect the entire community of God. In, that, in other words, you can be unloving towards your neighbor just by sitting at home and indulging in your own sin. So pretty high standards. So that's the first glimpse we get into their future. High standard. Okay? Failure takes you to the curses of Mount Ebal. Success takes you to the blessings of Mount Gerizim. But the most insightful future glimpse that Moses first proposes and then is carried out here has to do with the altar. Look at me in verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. As Francis Schaeffer points out, it's significant that the altar was built not on Gerizim, the mountain of blessing, but on Ebal, the mountain from which was declared that what would happen when the people sinned, the curses that would happen. When the, this was a visual, stark reminder to generation next that they were not always going to live up to this high standard and that they would therefore need an altar. It's because God is just. He is just. He must punish sin. And we would want that. I can't unpack that all now, but we would want that. In the book of Leviticus, God declares that life is in the blood. So rather than spill your own human blood, your sin could be forgiven by substituting animal blood to offer life when the payment of life is required. That's why an altar was needed. And as Schaefer points out with regard to blood sacrifice on Ebal, he says this, In this we should hear God saying, You shouldn't sin, but when you do sin, I will give you a way to return to me through the altar. Now, this is important for later, so pay attention. Now, here's the second glimpse then we get into their future. The second glimpse is frequent failure. By putting the altar where he does, God is saying, you are going to wander onto Mount Ebal. God expects his people to fail and fail often, so he gives them a way out through sacrifice. By the way, something else is said here about what is not a way out. What is not a way to blessing. And that is humanistic effort. Human effort. Notice in verse 31, the strange point. It's a strange thing, but it makes more sense when you think of it in this way. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. Elsewhere it says where no man uh, polluted the stones by putting his hands upon them. This is God's way of saying this sacrifice can have no hint of human work in it. It's all me. It's all gift. It's all grace. Now there's going to be more on this later, but this forbidding of human work 
brings us to the third glimpse into their future, which is high grace. So you have a high standard, frequent failure, but equally high grace. Free forgiveness of sin through a blood sacrifice. God loves his people, and so he does something about it. And that, by the way, is the definition of grace. God loves people. And so he makes that love active. He does something about it. He intervenes into history. However he intervenes, whatever that is, that is grace. He gives us a way out. And such grace helps people draw near to the loving God. And each time they draw near, they want to increasingly follow the law, which leads to blessing in Mount Gerizim. So notice, if you will, in this passage, it's not until after the sacrifice, after the sacrifice, one more time, after the sacrifice, that the law is written, verse 32, and the law is spoken, verses 34 and 35, because sacrifice will fuel God's people to follow the law. It's the sacrifice that fuels obedience. So that's them. What about us? Our future glimpse into worshiping as a community. What's the future glimpse God might want to give us, having read this, applying this to our lives? In a nutshell, the present and future of sunrise is both the highest standard, but still higher grace. It's both. The highest standard and still higher grace. I'm going to unpack this, but first I want to tell you about a couple of conversations I had this last week. I don't always or even normally get folks uh, airing opinions to me about Sunday morning worship, uh, but sometimes I do. And, and last week I received two comments that were sort of uh, broadly representative of what I tend to hear. And by the way, these weren't said at all, and I didn't receive them as being mean-spirited or hurtful or anything like that. The first comment was from someone who uh, admittedly infrequently attends the church or, or hasn't really been here for a while on Sunday morning. And they said this, man, I got to tell you, I always feel like when I come on Sunday mornings, I'm getting beat up from what you preach. Or, or even just, I feel beat up just from walking inside. You know, because, you know, we talk and we sing about Jesus being all of your life, you know, and it seems a little too extreme you know, him determining every decision, it's, it's, it's a bit much. The second comment I received later, from the other end of the spectrum, someone said, you know, I feel like if anything, you aren't challenging enough, right? We need, to, we, we need to be challenged further and higher. I mean, look, the people whose lives I know need to be challenged further, trust me. So on the one hand, many of you come here this morning, you wish for more patience, more leniency, more rope, and on the other end, Many of you desire a higher standard, a further challenge. So let's look at this. First glimpse into our future is a higher, highest standard. Not just a higher standard, but the highest standard. Jesus is pretty clear on this. If you think the Old Testament is a high standard, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 19 through 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes, I love that term, whoever relaxes, it's also frightening, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the people who are the teachers in church. The most religious people, the people who raise their hands, they come every week, they're part of the prayer meetings, they, go, they, they, they serve sometimes for the wrong reasons, but still. Unless your righteousness exceeds those people, you will never enter the kingdom. What? 
All right, that's the highest standard. Let me offer a couple challenges for those of us who dwell more in the higher grace realm, who may come this morning wanting the church to, you know, relax a little. Two little challenges. First, don't expect you can encounter Jesus and get a quick fix. I want to be very honest with you about this because I care about you. Don't expect to encounter Jesus and get a quick fix. One of the most comforting scriptures in the Bible is one which confirms there is a reason for everything. Don't we love when we think about that or we hear that there's a reason for everything? It comforts us. Romans 8.28 says this, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So in all things, God has a reason. He works for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. Great scripture. But while people typically stop here, the Apostle Paul goes on to clarify what is in fact good. Listen to this. Romans 8.29, the next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, what is good? What is the good that God works out in our lives through all circumstances? The good is anything that helps a person further conform to the image of God's Son. Anything that helps us become more like Jesus. Anything. That's not always the comfortable thing. C.S. Lewis, in fact, puts it brilliantly. Our Lord is like the dentist. Right, who, has a, who has a favorable image of the dentist? Anyone? 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 One of two, two people. That's nice. Your dad must have been a dentist. <laughs> Does, he says, our Lord is like the dentist. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some one particular. Now, C.S. Lewis was British, so they didn't go necessarily to dentists regularly, only when things hurt. I'm, I'm sorry. That's, I, I, I didn't plan on saying that. It just came to me. Thank you, Spirit of God. I, I blame you, Lord. Um, our, <laughs> terrible. I'm sorry. I'm an obnoxious American. Our Lord is like the dentist. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of one some particular ill which they are ashamed of, or which is obviously spoiling the daily life, like a bad temper or drunkenness. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you ask, but if you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. Make no mistake, says our Lord. If you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. So you may have come to church for a little help, and the good news is you'll get that help. You'll get change, but you'll likely get more than you bargained for. And that's a good thing. That's the first challenge. Second challenge, don't expect us to preach or sing Bible light. You know, to be like that free Bible app, you know, that just gives you a little bit. Read again with me in verses 34 through 35. As you read this, listen for a particular word that keeps poking its head out. All right? And afterwards, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, women and little ones and sojourners. All, 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 four times, all of God's standard for all of God's people. Even the little kids are out there listening to some of this stuff. Kids are listening to the blood sacrifice. I doubt they're talking about that in children's church right now. But all of it. I love what Colossians 3.16 says about worshiping together as a community. It says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. 
towards God, a great view of how we worship together. There's supposed to be this rich, full, indwelling and receiving of all of God's word, letting it just build up in you. And notice what happens first, but not only through preaching, but also through singing. That we're called to also sing God's word to each other. To each other. I'll never forget being in a worship service in my old church. My good friend was leading worship, and he had just read Colossians 3.16. And he proceeded to ask half the people in each aisle to turn and face the other half, okay? While we literally sang God's word to each other. Initially, it was very awkward, especially for the persons in the very middle who were like a foot away from each other, you know, and didn't bring their Tic Tacs to church. You know, I mean, that's a long song. You know, the breath of God. Well, it's not the breath of God, trust me. You know? I don't know, I don't know, maybe Simon later will actually uh, do this for us. We'll we'll see. So yeah, I mean, here's the deal. You can't expect the highest standard, full person renovation, even the hairy and hard parts of God's word. But thankfully, God gave his church an altar to meet the highest standard. And that altar's in the shape of a Roman cross and has upon it the perfect blood sacrifice when we fall short. That gives us the second glimpse into our future, which is frequent failure. Jesus Christ crucified is an ever-present reminder that God expects more failure from you than you expect from yourself. How do you feel about that statement? For, for the high grace person, it's good news because God loves you enough to have planned ahead for your frequent failure. If you're here this morning and you want grace, God's got it for you. He knows you're going to fall short. He, he's planned ahead for it. For the high standard person, it's good news because failure no longer devastates you but provides you another opportunity to grow. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling when you've walked away. You have a high standard for yourself. You walk away from a conversation. Oh, I can't believe I said that. Or, I, man, what was I talking about? Or, why did I do that? We all have those feelings. But the fact that the cross is there to remind us God expects more failure from us than we expect from ourselves means that he's going to grow you through that. He's going to make you more like Jesus through that. And that's the good news about any failure. Paul says it's through God's high standard that we find out we fall short. That's how we find out we fall short, through the high standard. The law reveals failure, but where there is increased recognition of failure, grace increases all the more. Romans 5.20. And that gives us the third glimpse into our future. Higher grace. Highest standard, Failure still, higher grace. So my brief exhortation for those of you in the high standard camp and we're running low on time, remember where you were, remember how you grew to where you are, and remember how you will get to your final destination. Baby, it's all by grace. Those of us who now trust Christ once didn't. I want you to hear that. You once did not trust Jesus. Titus 3, 3, 5 said that we were all foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, hating and hating one another. And then God's grace broke in through Jesus. Saved us, not because of anything we've done, because of his mercy. We have to be patient with others because God has been patient with you. You are all there. High grace folks, 
have like a sixth sense that when they walk in, sometimes you high standard folks treat them like they're second class Christians. They can sense it. We can't be that way. And you grow by grace. Paul says, look, man, he doesn't show false modesty. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. You can look it up sometime. Paul says, look, uh, I'm the hardest working pastor. I'm growing faster than the other pastor around. But he also says that it's only by God's grace. I can take no credit. So be encouraged by how you're growing, but also recognize it's only by the grace and free gift of God. So again, in a nutshell this morning, the present and future of sunrise is both the highest standard, but even higher grace. And really, friends, you know me by now, and a lot of you, and, and I pretty much preach the same sermon every week, just with different looks. So the last few weeks, I've preached on how stones remind us how we need to record God's grace for ourselves when beset by sin and trouble. We've talked about getting the order right. Deliverance, obedience, blessing. So that obedience isn't empty but fueled by deliverance. We have Jesus as the reverse Achan. One sacrifice for many who turn God's anger away towards private sin. And finally here, high standard. And because of our frequent failure and a greater sacrifice, we have higher grace. Because the need for Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross is not only a theme here in Joshua, but throughout the whole Bible. It is the mission of our church. And our mission of our church is to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by his grace. Because people have failed to meet that high standard, and they know it. In their heart of hearts, they know it. And so there's an urgency to introduce them to Jesus. And because those same people who now know Jesus continue to fail and return again and again to the free gift of forgiveness offered through the cross, that's how we grow, by grace, by that free gift. To give you an illustration of this, our relationship with God is like a string that he is holding. And every time we rebel against him, every time we fall short, that string is cut. And it's serious. There is a clear break. But our Father loves us and shows us grace. He forgives us because of Jesus' sacrifice. And so each time that happens, he ties the string back together. And that means each time we experience the forgiveness of Christ through the cross, we grow closer to God. See that? String gets shorter. The distance between us and God gets shorter. We get closer to him. And so the string is cut the next time. But guess what? Closer to him. Until finally, we end up with something like, uh, something like this. <laughs> you know, this is a, the beautiful picture of our lives. In our failure, we're forgiven through the altar of Christ. And so draw near to God and desire us to follow him. Let me close on this. In the 8th century B.C., God would punish his people for persistent rebellion. So way after Joshua, God would punish his people for rebelling against him over and over and over again. He ships them off to Assyria to become slaves there. Assyria, though, left some of God's people in the promised land and then shipped a bunch of other peoples to the promised land. It's actually a brilliant strategy. It helped prevent rebellion and stuff. But this creates this mixed race known as the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews back. So the Samaritans find their own place to worship. Not in the temple and not in Jerusalem. Guess where they set up shop? This is wild. They set up shop in Mount Gerizim. They knew their Bible. 
they knew their Bible. They must have thought, we won't choose Mount Ebal. Who wants to say that we're sinners? Let's choose to call ourselves blessed and do our own thing on the Mount of Blessing. So forsaking everything from the law about specific family being a part of the priesthood to how they specifically were called to do temple sacrifice in the law, they forsook that, and the Samaritans relaxed God's standards, thinking that they could earn blessing by their own works and worship if the standard was lowered. If God would just lower his standard a little bit, we can do that. We can be our own blessing and do our own works. To this day, this is why the only sacrifice going on anywhere in the world that has any relationship to the Old Testament is carried out by the Samaritans each Passover season on Mount Gerizim. The standard is still lowered while the blessing is easier to earn. The next time in the Bible we really hear about this mountain is John chapter 4 when Jesus confronts the Samaritan woman with God's high standard on marriage and sex outside of marriage. After he confronts her, her albeit brief defense is to legitimize her lifestyle and worship by pointing to the mountain upon which she and her oh-so-spiritual ancestors have worshipped, the same Mount Gerizim. What about that mountain? What about our worship, though? Friends, confronted with the high standard today, human hearts still try to point to their own efforts to please a God with a lower standard. Friends, there is no such God. And only by God's grace may we become no such church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it applies to our life. Thank you for how you thread your word throughout Scripture. And God, how, how this, this mountain can point us ultimately to the sacrifice of Jesus, to the high standard of the law, but the higher grace we receive when we fail. Lord, I pray for us as a church body that we would not fear. We would not fear coming to worship, to sing to you, to sing God's word, to hear God's word on Sunday mornings. May we not fear getting a heart wound. May we not fear our soul being wounded. May we not fear going under the knife when it hurts because of failure to meet up to God's standards because we have a higher grace in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Father, when we fail, may we keep going back to him that we might grow to be more like Jesus as individuals and as a church. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.